Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of We Are Here Tomorrow. We're excited for another curiosity-filled episode. In fact, John, I'd say we're pretty energized about it. Oh, for sure. Nice pun. Today, we are going to be discussing the story of nuclear energy, as well as exploring some of the recent innovations in the quote-unquote new nuclear. To many, it really seems like nuclear energy is both well-known and poorly understood. So just how good are we at nuclear fission? Is it an energy source that we're going to possibly use in the future? Or are we just playing with fire on a catastrophic scale? Yeah, and to be honest, Zach, uh, when you proposed the idea of doing podcasts on energy, I was convinced. I was convinced that it was a boring and pretty bad (laughs) idea. Because most people, myself included, take energy for granted. Here's a quick example. I've been living with friends and roommates for three years, and we still have yet to divvy up the electricity bill. Just someone's taken it, and it's been just small enough cost-wise in our minds that uh, it's an afterthought. Just put it on the tab. Just put it on the tab. So, like the Wizard of Oz that made Dorothy's world magical, we want to pull back the curtain on the imperfect energy systems that make our world magical and could even make them more magical in the future. So, why should you as an audience member, or you and I, care about energy? There are some problems or burdens with the current energy system. One of those burdens from energy is the cost. Apparently not expensive enough for me and my friends to care about divvying it up yet. Uh, but from electricity alone, the average U.S. household spends about $1,200 each year on electricity. For Australia, that same amount of energy costs double, about $2,400 U.S. dollars. And in Germany, that average U.S. household would have to spend nearly triple the amount of money to about $3,600 each year. Wow. Okay. Now, Australia and Germany households, they change their behavior to adapt to these high prices by using less power, but these electricity bills are still quite expensive. And some developing countries and communities, they can't even afford electricity because it's too expensive to be worthwhile. Right. And I think we sometimes, especially here in America, fall into this privilege of dispatchable energy. Uh, and what I mean by that is we, we really take the fact that when I flip my light switch on, I'm never really worried that the light's just not going to turn on, right? I pretty much assume that I'm going to have electricity when I want it, where I want it, things are going to turn on. Right. And what does dispatchable mean? Why, why is that important? Talk to me about that. Right. Definitely. So we kind of have to look at energy as a whole um, and just look at a for instance, because fundamentally, there always needs to be more energy generated than is being consumed, right? There's always got to be something in the energy well when I go to pull from it. Let's just say in my apartment, we average 100 kilowatt hours a day. But in some days, we also are using as much as 300 kilowatt hours a day. The power company doesn't know when I'm going to have these blowout 300 kilowatt hour days. So they always need to have at least that capacity in case I pick today and right now to burn those extra 200 kilowatt hours. Right. And important to know, there isn't a lot of storage of energy on this grid. When you turn on the light switch, they need to be making that same amount of electricity at the basically same time in order for that electricity to exist. It's not just some big storage amount of electricity that they can tap into to make up for this 200 kilowatt change. Exactly. Yeah. There's not these, there's not massive batteries sitting around. 
somewhere, right? So whenever you're seeing power lines or, or distribution grids, um, it is just distribution. It's it's directing the flow, but very infrequently is it actually holding on to that energy. So yeah, to be able to to pick up for those those larger days, it's what's called having good load following, and we're definitely going to mention that later. So keep your ears perked up. Um, but if the power grid doesn't have that extra capacity, when certain parts of the population decide to pull those larger numbers, other parts of the population are going to experience rolling blackouts. Essentially, when they're asking for energy, the power grid is not going to have enough to provide with them. This is very similar, or this is very common, rather, in places where populations are booming and expanding much quicker than the power grid can actually be updated. Hmm. Actually, this dispatchable energy is one of the biggest issues with some of the renewable energy sources that we have, like wind and solar. The day I want to burn the 300 kilowatt hours may also be a day when the clouds allow almost no solar energy to be collected. So then what do I do? Mm -hmm. We'll get back to that. Right. That's kind of the issue of that dispatchable energy. Um, Climate change is another thing, right, John? Yeah. Yeah. Here's another one. So creating energy isn't just expensive and needed on demand. Like you said, the process of making energy can have some serious negative effects. The burning of these so-called fossil fuels like coal and natural gas produces a majority of the energy coming out of the average Joe and Jane's outlet. It's responsible for most of it. And this burning, it also produces carbon dioxide, which floats into the atmosphere and accelerates climate change. By improving our energy sources, we can improve our climate outlook substantially. Right. And always in this conversation, like we've already mentioned, is renewable energy and limited supply and uh, what that means to us, right? So the limited supply issue is an ever-growing concern, especially within the last 30 years, with regard to our dependence on these non-renewable resources, right? So coal and petroleum products. Uh, I'm not going to make a comment on exactly when the oil and the natural gas are going to run out. However, we do have some pretty clear evidence that we are using them faster than they're being made by the by the earth. And we have clear evidence to say that we're at some point in time, we are going to run out. Mm -hmm. Statistically, we are moving towards that point faster every year. In fact, the U.S. Energy Information Administration predicts a global increase in energy of around 50 percent. And here in the U.S., around a 79 percent increase in energy consumption by 2050. So we're there's no bones about it. We need this energy. So when the time comes and we do eventually run out of these types of non-renewable resources, I think we'd really like to have a plan B. Definitely. And those are some of the kind of the problems of energy that we face. There's also opportunities. Energy, as we see it today, can be very different in the future. If energy was 10 times cheaper, a lot of improvements could happen to our world because we could use way more energy. For example, we could be recycling way more things, recycling everything. Recycling is very energy intensive. So we usually just throw it away. It's not worth reusing something. Right, exactly. I think just as a as a general rule of thumb, and I think we've seen this in economic trends as well. In general, that EIA has shown that there's a strong or that strong economic growth drives demand for more energy. So to put it a different way, the access to greater energy provides economic opportunity. Right. You're saying that there's some correlation between more energy usage and more economic prosperity. Something's going on there right. that 
we might be able to tap into. Right, exactly, exactly. So now that we're kind of wrapping our heads a little bit around the current state of energy affairs, you know, worldwide right now, let's dial back and actually look at nuclear energy and where nuclear energy has come from. And then we're going to meet at present day and talk about the future, right? Right. And so let's bring this all the way back. Just a couple of years, right? Just a couple. 1.7 billion years ago in Gabon, Africa, uh, on the West Coast, a rare element called uranium, famous in nuclear energy spaces, uranium mixed with water deep underground in just the perfect way to create heat. This heat was pretty small, maybe enough to power the electricity for 50 current day U.S. households, but it was generated every day for a few hundred thousand years. This is actually the first earliest known nuclear energy system on Earth. Right. And it's important to note that this was a fully naturally occurring thing. Please don't picture dinosaurs working at a nuclear power plant. (laughs) This this is not what's going on here. Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) I I suppose. Um, So anyways, let's fast forward a a couple more years to 1939. All right. A time that's a little bit more familiar to us. So some European physicists, Otter Hahn, Lise Meitner, and Fritz Strassmann successfully demonstrated a fission reaction. So basically the splitting of a uranium atom into a smaller atom, a neutron, and a ton of energy. This was a a huge breakthrough in particle physics. Mm -hmm. However, it wasn't until a couple years later that Enrico Fermi entered the scene and things really got interesting. So looking at fission, it's not exactly useful if you just can do it one atom at a time, right? Still, we're talking atomic levels of energy. It's so tiny. So what Fermi realized is the only way to make it a useful thing was to create a fission chain reaction. Basically, a single fission reaction releases a neutron with enough energy to cause another reaction, and then another reaction, and then another reaction, like dominoes, right? Like dominoes radiating out. So you could do, you could start just one reaction, and it would just continue infinitely. You as a human had to do no more work. The energy start, started to build up over time. Right. It's almost like a, a really long, really, really high energy burning candle, right? Hmm. Yeah. In, in, some, in some very simple ways. Um, So, anyways, in 1942, on an unused squash court underneath the University of Chicago, uh, underneath their athletic stadium, Fermi made history by successfully creating the world's first fission chain reaction. Uh, With academic help, he went on to create the first nuclear fission reactor, the Pile 1, in the exact same spot as this groundbreaking experiment. Now, this was not a reactor in the modern sense. This was literally about 390 tons of wood and brick combined. And at its core, they were producing about a half watt of power. That is a big uh, squash court uh, to, <laughs> to be making this thing. Uh, yeah, I, from, the, from the pictures, it literally is they, they tore down walls and just stacked wood and wood and stone and stone because that's really all they knew how to insulate the, that, that nuclear material. Um, it's it's pretty that's crazy. Amazing. Yeah. That's so like that's so primitive relative to what we do today. Like today, where we pull out fuel rods in and out of the reactor, and we're gonna maybe mention that later. Mm-hmm. They literally had a yardstick. Wow. That they were it was longer than a yard. It was like six feet, so it was like a two yardstick that they w- would push in and out to essentially um, activate the 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 fission reaction. Huh. 
Okay. Interesting. Well, so Fermi's nuclear theories and experiments, uh, they were developed much further after 1942 and transformed into nuclear weapons, mostly mm-hmm. by the U.S. during World War II. Two of these weapons were, of course, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan on August 6th and 9th, 1945. The world had never seen that level of destruction. It killed about 100 to 200,000 people in Japan. Of course, the war was over within a month, so it was somewhat effective, some people think. Uh, And since the U.S. thought they would maintain sole control of nuclear weapons for another generation, say 20 years, the debate was whether they should share any knowledge or access of nuclear technology with other countries. But uh, after World War II, the Soviet Union had other plans. Their tensions were rising with the U.S., so they researched and reportedly espionaged their way (laughs) to joining the Nuclear Weapon Club just four years later in 1949. They had their own weapon. Wow, yeah. So in... Back in the States in 1951 in Idaho, the Atomic Energy Commission turned on what would end up being the first reactor that gives us any amount of you know usable energy. And when I say usable energy, they're producing about 100 kilowatts. And I believe at that point in time, they weren't doing much more than powering up four light bulbs. Wow. So it's more of a, a proof of concept. Hey, this works. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was definitely a proof of concept. I think it's like interesting to note that it was just kind of like an article that took up three quarters of a page in Popular Mechanics, right? That was like part of our sources. Uh, you know, it, it was a little bit of a blip on the radar at that point in time. Right. Right. And then a year or two later, in 1953, uh, this is four years later now, after the Soviet Union gained nuclear weapons. Finally, the U.S. did something about this. President Dwight D. Eisenhower gave a now classic speech to the United Nations in New York City called Atoms for Peace. Eisenhower in this advocated for changing the nuclear research focus away from the weapons and instead to energy that would transform our lives for the better. He encouraged other countries to copy America's nuclear knowledge to create energy and To its effect, America began distributing the knowledge and resources to build nuclear power plants to other countries. And of course, those other countries, they had to promise and they did promise to not pursue nuclear weapons. So in 1953, nuclear power plants began to spread quite quickly across the globe. Right. And that's just the next year is when we actually see the first like really commercially viable uh, nuclear power plant, right? So we hop back over to the USSR in Abninsk. Uh, it's uh, about 150 miles from Moscow. Uh, it was a nuclear reactor, a nuclear fission reactor that was providing about six megawatts to their their town power grid. Uh, and so while it was commissioned in 1954, or officially powered up in 1954, it was actually it ran for over 50 or for just under 50 years, and was actually safely decommissioned in 2002. So that's pretty good for the first one, I would say. And, and six megawatts, that's about 6,000 current-day households. That's kind of how the math works out. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think at that point in time, it was definitely powering more because we were using significantly less right, right. Uh, energy. But yeah, at this point in time, yep, exactly. It's about 1,000 a a homes to one megawatt hour, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is just the start. In the 1950s and 60s, 
electricity kind of becomes popular. The demand is doubling every decade and utilities had to get new energy from every large source they could add. So nuclear energy was so new that the final electricity costs were actually unknown. Um, But amazingly, (laughs) the manufacturers of nuclear energy promised that the prices would be competitive, which allowed nuclear energy to grow ultra fast alongside coal and oil and gas energy sources due to all this demand. So by 1970, 1% of US energy is actually coming from nuclear. But then in the 70s, there's some there's some hiccups. Nuclear is is different from most other energy sources in a few things. But one key thing is where you have to spend the cost. Okay. so basically how you pay for the nuclear energy with natural gas. Let's say you pay one hundred dollars to create the factory that converts gas to energy. Then over the next 10 years, you spend nine hundred dollars on the fuel itself to the gas itself to make energy. Mm-hmm. With nuclear power plants, you need to basically spend $900 to create the power plant, $900 up front, but then only $100 for maintenance and operations in the following decade. So a very big switch in the price. And this is fine when borrowing money is cheap with low interest rates, then borrowing that $900 up front mm-hmm. can be relatively affordable. But in the 1970s, borrowing money to build these nuclear reactors became extremely expensive. Uh, as a result, the cost per nuclear power plant quadrupled from 1971 to 1976. Wow. Okay. For this reason, gas and coal became way more cost attractive. So instead of putting in way more nuclear power plants, they continued to build the ones that they had planned. But they were putting in more gas and coal for the new electricity. So actually, after 1974, new nuclear power plants, the orders plummeted, and actually some cancellations started to accelerate. So people are getting out of the nuclear energy game. In fact, no new reactor orders were placed in the U.S. between 1978 and 2012. When I graduated, when we graduated from high school, finally they decided, hey, let's put in another <laughs> nuclear power plant. Wild. Right. So uh, wrapping this up, in the 1980s, there was slight nuclear growth, but it wasn't due to building more nuclear reactors. It was actually due to nuclear reactor production becoming more efficient per power plant that they had. So there's some growth and we get to a modest amount of nuclear energy today. Right. Gotcha. So as we as we get into the 1980s and yeah, especially the 1980s, we we really experience our first major nuclear catastrophe, right? Um, right, well, 1979. Right, with uh, with Three Mile Island, and then in 1986 we have the the meltdown of Chernobyl. That's uh, and then in fast forwarding a little bit to the 21st century, and in 2011 we actually have another meltdown at Fukushima in Japan. Um, and there were some pretty wide-ranging implications of that of that meltdown, and kind of why we picked those those two or three. When we say meltdown, what does that actually mean, right? So we need to return to what what uh, fission is at its core. So, like I mentioned before, think of fission as a really really slow burning candle. As long as there's a perfect amount of wax, the candle can continue to burn and produce heat, right? That's essentially what we are doing with through fission is we are creating massive amounts of heat. Mm-hmm. 
that heat is used typically to heat water into steam. So you're turning nuclear energy into thermal energy. This then turns a turbine, turning that thermal energy to mechanical energy. And then the turbine spins a shaft on a backwards motor, essentially a generator, mechanical energy to electrical energy, boom. So everything in that process is all fine and dandy as long as you're providing enough cooling to this fusion reaction, right? To these rods. Yeah. And why is that? Right. So what we need to do, so that's like the double-edged sword of nuclear energy is that in these relatively small nuclear rods, you have a massive amount of energy being produced. Mm -hmm. These things are essentially boiling off water at like 2,800 degrees Celsius. So extremely hot. So as long as we're pulling that heat out quickly, making that steam and turning it into energy, we're good. The problem becomes when we're not able to pull that energy out fast enough, right? Um, when you, if you can't pull the energy out fast enough, you're essentially heating up a slowly ticking time bomb. You're heating these, uh, both the rods and the surroundings up very, very quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. so what can happen is uh, during a complete meltdown, the rods actually get hot enough to melt. Mm. So we've lost control of that radioactive material inside the power plant then. What happens from there is kind of what separates some of the loss of life disasters like Chernobyl with the environmental disasters like Fukushima. So at Chernobyl, the meltdown was accompanied by a massive explosion that ejected an enormous amount of radioactive material into the environment. So that explosion actually is what caused a ton of the damage because it spread the nuclear material throughout the the immediate area. That initial explosion immediately killed two of the plant employees and severe radiation poisoning killed about 29 others within the coming months. Many of these employees knowingly re-entered the reactor to prevent any further leaks and they gave their lives to try and save their neighbors and friends. Since 1986, approximately 93,000 fatalities have been attributed to some sort of radiation poisoning caused by Chernobyl. Wow. So we have a massive impact on human life here. My God. Yeah, right. I actually, what, what shocks me then is, is after that time, there was about an 18-kilometer wide, what they call exclusion, exclusion zone, essentially where it's too radioactive to, to be for any amount of time, right? Right, because all the radiation shot up into the air and landed along mm-hmm. this 18-kilometer wide uh, zone. Right. Is that the idea? Yep, yep. Okay. And, this isn't some sort of crazy thing. These are these are particles. These are molecules. Just like, right. just like you think, of, it's literally dust. It ends up being radioactive dust that that uh, lays down on this eighteen mile wide swath of land. Um, right, and it's moving around like little bullets. Mm-hmm. That's how they explain it in the show Chernobyl. Right, exactly. What surprised me is I was always under the impression that that exclusion zone was off limits for fifty thousand years. Right. And what I was actually very intrigued to find out is that as of 2010, that exclusion zone is actually like somewhat of a public attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ukrainian government, which is where Chernobyl lies now, has shown that the environmental radiation is safe for visiting. They haven't looked into the long term effects of living there yet, but there is like plant life and animal life has fully returned to the area, which is which is really interesting to see. So then we 
we fast forward from 1986, from this this loss of life incident, to what happened at Fukushima. So in March of 2011, there was a massive 9.0 earthquake that devastated the eastern, or devastated eastern Japan. This was a mind-blowing fact to me to give an idea of literally how earth-shattering this was. The entire island of Japan was moved several meters east, and the entire or in the local coastline there, subsided by about half a meter. That, wow. <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable. They were saying that the ocean floor was shaking by about 10 to 20 meters at the at the fault line, which is mind-blowing. Um, so the reactor survived this earthquake. Actually, they, they were pretty robust. Um, the power grid is what was knocked out to the reactor cooling systems. So they were on backup power. Everything was good. However, like most earthquakes, there was an ensuing tsunami, and that disabled the the diesel-powered backup generators. So we were, like we were talking about earlier, we were unable now to cool the core. In, in an attempt to try and do that, workers actually went in and pumped in seawater to pull away as much of that heat as possible. And they're trying to prevent the meltdown. Is that the idea of right? Okay. As long as yeah, as long as we can hit. As long as we can continue to pull heat out, we can very slowly back away from that critical point. Hmm. That's essentially the thought. But it is a very time-consuming process because even after you you pull the re- the fuel rods out of the reactor and you shut down fission, uranium is extremely dense and holds onto that heat energy for a long, long time. Um, so it can take days and weeks to cool these things down. So as in order to in order to negate the immediate risk of critical meltdown, they were pumping in seawater. And that seawater was, unfortunately, partially pumped back out into the ocean. Hmm. It was estimated that that was never actually a risk to the public, but it was something where elevated levels were were experienced at, in California. Hmm. So unlike Chernobyl, there was actually no recorded deaths attributed to this disaster, but the environmental damage was pretty wide-ranging and is really still being evaluated. Um, Essentially, what they had to do was roll back about a million people out of their homes in about a 12-mile or 20-kilometer area. So very uh, somewhat similar to the Chernobyl range, but uh, they didn't have as much loss of life. Right. So very costly. Extremely costly. I think the estimates were saying that the cleanup would cost between 200 billion and a trillion dollars US dollars for Japan. Right. Which is probably, you know, not, you know, not worth it for Fukushima, uh, as well as people moving from their houses because they, they're suddenly in an exclusion zone where they can't live, all that stuff. So very, right. Very expensive. And, the, and, that, and in addition, like containing that radioactive material, I know there was, I, I don't think we're going to go into it, but there was like that, you mentioned like the very Game of Thronesian ice wall that they'd created, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very briefly, they basically made an an underground ice wall to contain all of the water that is radioactive to prevent it from seeping further into the ocean. Very cool, very weird, uh, but we can't get into that too much. (laughs) So one thing that that these disasters really start to uh, highlight is that nuclear downsides are mostly concentrated events, uh, like these accidents you mentioned. These concentrated events are terrible and they're also compelling to coverage in the media and for you and I to discuss and share them easily. The biggest downsides of coal and natural gas, the two biggest competitors to nuclear energy, are carbon emissions. Death 
and destruction from coal and natural gas are far less concentrated into events, but rather extremely distributed over time and the globe. And often we don't even know that they are affecting us. Right. I think it's like weird a lot of times to read very, very commonly about the effects that climate change has on various regions in the world. But a lot of times we we don't include like human mortality in that as well. Right. 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 Yeah. It's, it's very invisible, very indirect. And of course, this is one of the obstacles for understanding and addressing, yeah, the climate change issues. So these, these nuclear disasters, they're horrible. 93,000 people dying from uh, Chernobyl and prevent potentially making some parts of Japan, you know, uninhabitable for many years. All that stuff is really tough. Uh, But maybe that attention should be directed more to the downsides of coal, oil, and natural gas. There's some ignorance going on in that space where there's an excess potentially attention being poured into the nuclear disasters. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, of course, these disasters happen, and especially with Fukushima Daiichi, it started to create a downfall. Fukushima's accident was the straw that broke the nuclear camel's back, where countries accelerated their shutdown of nuclear power plants, many of them years or decades before they planned to shut them down. For example, just two months after Fukushima, Germany decided to phase out all of their nuclear energy by 2022. At the time, it was more than 20% of their energy supply, and their energy was already expensive in the first place. So they're really trying to get out of the nuclear energy game at a high cost. Yeah, like you mentioned above, right? It was like three times the, the cost, approximately. Yeah, of US, yeah. which is which is today's numbers, to be fair, right. but still. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah, so I think it's really important, like you mentioned, Germany, to look around the globe and kind of see where are we now, both in terms of like nuclear slices of the pie, as well as what direction we're moving in. So let's look at home first in the U.S. We're looking at about 20% of our total energy generation is provided by nuclear energy. So in our 30-year outlook, let's say, uh, the U.S. is essentially looking to maintain about the same amount of nuclear output while they are going to still be decommissioning. And like we had kind of mentioned in the past where we hadn't been making new nuclear reactors, but our nuclear output was increasing Mm -hmm. just because of innovations. That's essentially what economists are thinking is going to happen at here within the next 30 years is even though there's going to be a slow uh, decommissioning, we're going to still get marginally better at the ones that are still running. Right. And we'll, we'll provide a little more context and another opinion on this later. Right, definitely. Now, looking abroad in Europe, the EU strikes me just from their policy as being pretty anti-nuclear. Like we already mentioned Germany. A lot of the countries don't have a huge reliability on nuclear energy. Uh, and so I think a lot the cost to cut that from their from their infrastructure was relatively low. France was a notable outlier. So France is an interesting case. They actually had about 80% at one point in time of their electrical energy coming from nuclear. Uh, Now they're at about 75%. And interestingly, they they enjoy about, or some of the lowest energy costs in the world. However, a lot of times, you know, that cost and that policy doesn't always align. As of 2015, France's stated energy goals were to reduce their share of nuclear energy in the electrical generation by about 50% by 2035. 
So it is important to note that that's still having about 40% of their energy generated by nuclear energy, but they are actively decreasing that, right? Uh, Hopping over then to another region, um, China has the potential of being a massive player in the future of nuclear energy. So looking at these 2050 predictions again, uh, the EIA attributes nearly the entire increase in energy demand outside of the U.S., Australia, and the European Union to China and India's increasing industrial centers. They don't. They aren't necessarily giving an indication that China is pointing towards nuclear as their as their ace in the hole, essentially, to keep up with their increasing energy demand. But we do know that their energy output is certainly going to need a very appreciable upgrade. And nuclear could be one of their answers. Hmm. So I think it begs the question, okay, so this is what is going on worldwide. What are some of the other reasons why we're not using nuclear as much? I'm sure it's not a shock after reading about those disasters that safety is our number one on this list. But sometimes safety is kind of relative to what we're looking at. Like we mentioned that issue with directness. Even though we sometimes attribute nuclear disasters as being much more damaging, do we need to maybe scope it relative to other other energy deaths, other energy costs? Right. So with Chernobyl killing 93,000 people, maybe we should try and compare that to what coal and natural gas are doing. Burning fossil fuels, this is really hard to, to measure. It's kind of an invisible issue. But the best models that I was able to find are estimating that burning fossil fuels for energy, electricity specifically, are responsible for about 3,000 to 6,000 deaths per day. Wow. Every day of every every year in, in the past, you know, couple decades. Uh, these are very, like, invisible deaths. It's mostly shortening people's lives. It's not killing, you know, some healthy 40-year-old 40, 40 person. It's instead, you know, ending the average life by about nine months. That's what they think, which seems like a small amount, but it's every person nine months. That's pretty bad. And depending on where you are in the world, it can be even worse or slightly not as bad. But that's a huge number of of invisible deaths that aren't really talked about coming potentially from fossil fuels. Right. Yeah, that's I think that's something that a lot of people either willfully or or not like sometimes choose to look the other way on. Right. Mm -hmm. So now we move back to a more nuclear focused issue, which is the the disposal of nuclear waste, right? So after these fuel cores of uranium are spent, quote-unquote spent, they're still extremely reactive or radioactive. The answer is basically got to wait it out. <laughs> these programs take on many different forms, but it's essentially filling a bunch of high-tech barrels with nuclear waste and just burying them in a mountain for 100 years or for hundreds of years, rather. This has the potential, obviously, for huge amounts of environmental poisoning if those barrels were to ever spring a leak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last uh, the last one, we kind of touched on this. It's always inherent in the beginning of nuclear fuel, but nuclear weapons proliferation. So, I mean, at its core, the technology used to make nuclear fission possible and support that economy is essentially the same technology you use for creating nuclear weapons arms. Right. And when we talked about the Atoms for Peace speech in the U.S. sharing nuclear power plant technology across the globe, those countries promised to not make weapons. But India and Pakistan actually just directly made 
nuclear weapons and join the nuclear weapons arm, arms race with that technology, with those plants. So it happens. Right. And we can't also pretend that we weren't doing the same thing as well, right? Absolutely. During Adams for Peace, we went from 1,000 nuclear warheads to the end of Dwight D. Eisenhower's term. We had 20,000 nuclear warheads. So right. it's it happens hand in hand, unfortunately. So another issue with nuclear is the cost. We talked about how the nuclear companies, they promised to have competitive prices in the 60s and 70s. Well, Turns out that it's pretty darn expensive uh, per unit of energy to do nuclear right now. Some things might change that in the future, but that's expensive as well as the upfront cost, spending all that money upfront rather than over the decades of use. That makes it really expensive. You could be putting your money into other investments as well as there's pretty expensive time delays. Some of these uh, these new, the 2012 uh the 2012 power plants, nuclear power plants we mentioned, their overruns on the timelines are crazy. Yeah, I think we found one that was like eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty bad. Delayed, crazy. Uh, we also don't seem to be choosing nuclear energy because it doesn't sufficiently align with our environmental and climate goals. It's hard to say if we simply don't value preserving our environment and climate levels enough or maybe the perceived safety and cost concerns are more important than the climate. That determination goes above my pay grade. <laughs> There's a lot of complicated things going on there, maybe another episode. But it's worth thinking about where climate preservation falls in our personal community and global stack of priorities. Whew. All right. So let's just take a deep breath real quick. We laid out our energy concerns and like the possible energy holes that we could see coming in the future, right? We then walked through our nuclear timeline just to understand some of the basics about where nuclear energy came from and how much nuclear energy kind of has always been tied into some policymaking and, and political aspects, as well as always having these stumbling blocks of cost and, and potential catastrophic disaster. Mm -hmm. So we kind of now come to modern day where we're starting to see somewhat of a multifaceted fall in the early part of the 21st century here in nuclear energy. Is there a door that we need to open? And is is there maybe a horizon for quote unquote new nuclear? What do you think? Right. So while the interest in nuclear energy seems to be trending down, new companies and research groups are trying to turn that around for sure. They readily admit that the nuclear industry cannot solve their problems with the same thinking that got them into this downfall. So they're taking new approaches. Okay. One of those companies is NuScale. Zach, you must already <laughs> like them because they spell their name N-U-Scale, like a pounds, which is quite funny of them. report them to the Better Business Bureau for being so funny. <laughs> so instead of making one to four massive nuclear power systems for each of these power plants, that's the traditional method, NuScale, they've shrunk down and overhauled the standard design and plan to install 12 of them in their first power plant. Hmm. In total, these 12 units will be able to power about 600,000 homes. That's a lot smaller than the 3 million households that the largest nuclear power plants can power traditionally. And amazingly, New Scale, they think these small changes might be enough to upright the nuclear industry. Tons of other new companies and research groups agree with new scale and collectively they might be ushering in a new and actually prosperous era for new nuclear power. 
Okay. I think it's important. Like we we're comparing these sizes. I think it's important to look at like, what is our default, like our average run of the mill reactor, right? Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah. Yeah. The traditional default nuclear reactors, they've been growing over time, but effectively we're at the point where they, they're massive in size. They power each about 1 million households per unit. And they put, you know, say three of these units, uh, on a plot of land. So we're talking about 3 million households per power plant, as well as they are cooled with water as we talked about. Um, but there's other designs and these other smaller form factors that haven't been explored much. And that's what brings us to new scale and the other efforts that are trying to foundationally advance what's going on. Right. And that just to touch on the water real quick, like with these like with these larger plants, like building plants larger and larger, like water was really our only option for cooling, I think, at this at this high level or at this massive scale, rather. Right. At least proven. Yeah. 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 Maybe there's other ones, but they're very experimental. You can't just switch to a different thing uh, when you're trying to make something that big. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about the primary changes that these new things are doing. So the first primary change is that we're going from these big power plants, like powering 3 million households to small power plants where each, each unit is powering like a thousand to 10,000 households each way, way smaller. The second and final primary change is that they're changing the safety from this complex cooling to simple robust cooling methods. There's different ways, but they intend that these new power plants will be walk away safe, quote unquote. And, and just, just define that for me real quick. Yeah. Walk away safe. The same idea of, uh, apartments are turnkey where you can just lock your apartment and walk away. Gotcha. The idea with nuclear power plants is right now, you know, you have to have so many people staffing it and making sure it's safe. If someone were to walk away um, and no one were to be working at these new nuclear reactors, these power plants, they would default into being safe. They would probably shut down. They would turn off. They would cool. All of that happens automatically. Gotcha. Okay. Trying to like prevent that, that inherent risk of like that full catastrophic meltdown, right? Right. So one of these new nuclear efforts that takes these foundational advances to the extreme the company is called Oklo, and their power plant named Aurora cannot get close to powering 1 million homes or even mm-hmm. the 100,000 homes of each new scale unit or 50,000. It's far smaller, not as small as Mr. Fusion in Back to the <laughs> Future 2, which powered one simple DeLorean car. Oklo's Aurora can power only about 1,000 homes. And you're not putting like food garbage into it either, right? Yeah, yeah. no bananas okay. and random juices from <laughs> the garbage can, which is what they do. Uh, back to the future too. Uh, so because the power aspirations of Aurora are so low, the unit is small. One Aurora will be about twice the square footage of the median U.S. single-family home, and it will be perched on a plot of land roughly equal to a single median U.S. single-family lot. And apparently they don't need a big backyard to make nuclear energy. Who knew? <laughs> so Oklahoma's Aurora also overhauled the traditional nuclear reactor design. Instead of circulating water to facilitate and cool the reaction, the heat, the Oklahoma team surrounds the nuclear materials with salts to passively cool the reaction. They've also simplified the, their parts and processes to hopefully leverage those size and design changes into a handful of other subsequent advantages, which we'll explain right now. Right. And to backtrack quickly, 
Do you want to just make a comment on like why the salt is like inherently different than water? Yeah, salt. So how they have it set up in, in Aurora is salt can take a lot of heat, but what it can do is instead of needing to constantly circulate water, new water to that's colder and can take away heat, the salts will actually expand in the Aurora design, which will push the uranium, the radioactive pieces farther and farther away, which will actually slow down the reaction. So an increase in heat causes a distancing of uranium, which decreases the reaction, which decreases the heat, which then the salt can shrink down. So there's just this like loop where it can never get too hot. Right. Yeah. Okay. Like returning to the candle, it's like if you could just, as the candle is burning, perfectly pour out the wax to make sure you're getting the right amount of a flame. Sure. Sure. I don't know my right. candle dynamics yeah. that well, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Zach, let's talk. We're just going to roll with it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right. So, so Zach, let's talk about these subsequent changes. Talk to me about money. Sure. So like we mentioned above with these larger plants, there were these massive, massive money commitments, right? Not only time, but also money. And in these projects, we're talking 10, $10 billion, you know, multiple billions of dollars. This is just huge. And a lot of times it takes full corporations with some government funding and to, to back one of these projects. And a lot of times they don't, they end up ballooning to twice the cost. So with these, with Oakland, with New Scale, they're trying to target more of that moderate to large money commitment, which is about 10 or a million to 100 million per plant, right? Mm -hmm. It's more fiscally attractive and it's also easier for you to, you know, dip your toe or to try nuclear energy, right? So it could cater to a smaller demand. So if there is, a region, and we're just going to say region, I'm not going to define how big that is. If there was a smaller region that decided that, hey, we have that capital to possibly try and power our community in a, in a different way, they would be able to, to kind of try it out and see what happens. It's like buying a house versus buying a car in terms of relative cost. Both are huge purchases, but the magnitude is very different. To further the analogy, some of the projects in this small reactor class are targeting like we the walkaway safe. They were targeting um, to have a completely self-contained unit. So say you've realized that the reactor wasn't for you, just like some people do with cars or houses. With a car, yes, you're going to lose some money. But as long as you can afford that small loss, you can have a new car or no car by the end of the day pretty easily. A house, as you can imagine, is quite a bit harder to swap out, right? If you build a house on a certain plot of land and you live in it for a year and realize this is not the house for me, it's going to be a whole heck of a lot more costly to rip out that house and put in something new than it, than it is just to move on. Right, right. Um, and actually, there are there's another player that we're just briefly going to mention. It's uh, Westinghouse's Vinci project, and they actually have a design that's specifically a essentially a roll-away version, a mobile nuclear power plant that's uh, on the scale of about five megawatts. Right. So a semi can pull up with your power plant, and if it's not working out, it can drive away. So another change from this overhaul of size and simplicity is you go from having many groups involved in nuclear energy creation. You have one group for building the giant reactor, one group for owning the giant reactor, and a third group for operating this giant reactor. Instead of having those many groups, you often in the future will have just one integrated group where one company like Oklo, they plan to build 
own and operate the reactor all together, all themselves. This hmm. should hopefully lower the number of people that can get their hands on nuclear materials, thus lowering the nuclear proliferation risk. And it could also improve the overall customer experience. That's just the idea of integrated companies right. in the first place. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think going along with that, we're, uh, we're looking at, again, like differences in magnitude, right? With these large, massive scale projects, it's you need government involved, you need state, sometimes federal government involved. It's big, slow decisions, long time commitments. And honestly, some people just don't want to deal with it in their backyard, right? Mm-hmm. So with Oklo and with uh, New Scale, you're looking at a somewhat smaller and less impactful area, and thus maybe quicker and smaller decisions to get to, you know, the approved project, for example. Right. In addition to that, we are looking at a lot of you know lower upfront costs and upfront investment, right? Like we'd kind of mentioned. In terms of operating as well, you may actually see lower cost estimates because of the standardization of these designs. And mm-hmm. we're going to touch on it a little bit later, but um, essentially being, you know, only having to approve one design and using that design in multiple, multiple areas and multiple regions, that's a lot easier than having to have new regulation and new scoping and new uh, new specs laid out every single time one of these power plants is needed. Right. These nuclear units are products in themselves. They have names like Aurora and Evici. They're meant to be made many, many times and be the exact same, which can be simpler for approvals. Approve the design once and you don't have to do it every time you build a giant new nuclear plant. So another change is that typically these massive old traditional nuclear reactors, they're considered base load energy, which basically means that they're just always making one constant output of electricity, where sometimes if we want to pair nuclear energy with solar energy or just use nuclear energy in the evening where the demand is higher, you want that load following that Zach mentioned, where power plants can be turned up and down and uh, or on and off even in how much electricity is coming out of it. That way it can pair well and be the source of electricity on a sunny or windy day. That's only possible in these newer designs where the old school reactors had to just be always on or, you know, be a giant ordeal to turn them off. Totally. Yeah. And another thing is the cost. The cost is a huge thing. That's a huge thing that we think of when we want to buy our electricity. And we're hoping that a lot of these little pieces start to go, start to make things cheaper instead of having really costly construction and maintenance for these old traditional massive power plants. You have mass manufacturing that should be able to lower the price of electricity. Zach, you straddle these worlds of crazy expensive, unique construction equipment, like these giant reactors, but not reactors in this case, and Mm -hmm. more mass manufactured equipment and components. What can you tell us about how all of these lead to cost savings and what might that mean for these new nuclear energy options? Right. So this is really a lot of times a question of scalability and what that does in terms of like the upfront manufacturing costs as well as 10, 20, 30 years down the line, the the upkeep and maintenance costs. Um, So on the front end, having that turnkey solution, having standardized parts that are used in 400 different models worldwide, 
is is always going to be better when you're starting assembly or when you're starting a fab a fabrication process like an assembly line for example mm-hmm. all or a large majority of that cost is that upfront cost like where i need to set up the assembly line hmm. as soon as the assembly line actually is up and running the upkeep costs are pretty minimal and the assembly line immediately starts paying for itself so once you get past that that's that small amount of time but that large amount of cost like startup cost you can usually very quickly start making uh, revenue off of your or profit off of your investment. Right. right. So these old traditional uh, old traditional reactors, they didn't have a factory line because it was too expensive to make one because they're only making a couple units where in the case of Oklo's Aurora and Westinghouse Avicii, they're going to make thousands of these, they hope. So they're going to make right. an assembly line expensive up front, but then it's going to quickly pay for itself if they can make a ton of these units. Right, exactly. So, and yeah, like we said, kind of we're using all the same parts in these units up front. So we have to have a very small number of even assembly lines, right? Right. Now, flipping forward, we get the reactor installed. Now, what are the costs? With with large equipment, that is always a significant part of the profits. And typically when these, when large equipment sales happen, that's actually baked into the cost. You usually look at a lifespan of the machine and where you're going to see cost. So a lot of times you'll see that initial upfront investment, which could be 20, 30% of your overall cost. And then you see a large portion of that cost dip down and be a low but steady portion of the life stock or the life of your product, right? And so what that cost is, is maintenance. Right. And because these new designs are a lot simpler and because they're made at scale, it's it's a lot easier to replace a broken piece because odds are that broken piece isn't some complex, specially designed, specially fabricated, all this nonsense that makes things expensive. It's designed to be very simple, easy to replace and cheap to maintain. Right. Yeah. And just having the numbers behind having many units in the field is going to just improve that and iterate on itself, right? Right. Um, and you essentially start seeing places where, hey, I know this part is going to wear out in 20,000 hours. Hmm. So I'm going to I'm gonna design it so that it's an easy compartment to access and, and get into, whereas like otherwise you have to tear apart these very complicated machines that a lot of times aren't very service friendly yeah. with, these, with these traditional power plants. Um, so it just makes things easier on both the front and back sides. Right. So we know costs are going to be coming down, but I guess it's yet to be seen how far down, how much cost savings they can can bring from those changes. Okay, so now now we have a sense of the cost and where things are going, what these these new nuclear reactors can do. Let's let's start to look to the future of, of how these things can impact our lives over the next 20 years. And this is a really tricky question relative to most of our topics. We don't really have a good estimate for where new nuclear energy is going and how it's going to impact our lives. Part of this hazy future comes from companies and governments releasing limited information, secret information. But most of it comes from companies and governments simply not knowing how useful nuclear energy will be in their eyes and in the eyes of the customers, how cheap it will be, how safe, etc. Mm-hmm. And and maybe this coronavirus pandemic pushes some countries to confront other vulnerabilities like climate change. And those countries demand carbon friendly solutions that include nuclear energy. We just don't really know. 
Um, but ending the podcast right here uh, would be no fun. <laughs> so instead, we're introducing a new segment onto our show, and we're calling it Five Futures. Since the range of possible future outcomes is quite wide, we are going to lay out five possible future scenarios and what it might take to get to that scenario and the likelihood of getting there. And in this case, most of these five futures will be unique and mutually exclusive from the others. So without further ado, here we have possible future number one for you, Zach. Consider this the baseline scenario where nuclear energy becomes responsible for about half as much nuclear energy electricity generation in 2040 as today. You're you're mentioning maybe the 20% staying constant. Some other estimates say that it's going to drop um, to about 10%, as low as 10% mm-hmm. in 2040. Somewhere in that range seems possible, but sure enough, it won't be going up in this, po- in this baseline scenario. And these new nuclear companies they will actually take many years to prove cost and safety results. So the next 20 years of nuclear might be determined mostly by these old traditional nuclear power plants. This possible future aligns with the U.S. Energy Information Agency's projection of about 12% of U.S. energy coming from nuclear in 2040, down from the 20% of today. And what do you think? You think that's pretty possible? You think that's you think that's our most likely scenario? Yeah, it's probably the most likely. It's kind of like nothing really changes and we just keep mm-hmm. on the slow decline. And from what you and I have read, there doesn't seem to be anything that is definitely going to change what's out there. There are just too many unknowns with the things that people are trying. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's what Oklo and, and this n- new scale is trying to prevent. But I'm wondering if they maybe they're too little too late. Right. You know? And we in nuclear, we end up essentially missing missing the boat, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about possible future number two, Zach. Sure, yeah. Possible future number two is where we would see a moderately more rigorous push globally to go carbon neutral, right? So we want to ixnay natural gas, petroleum, and coal by about 2040. What that's going to do is make electricity almost exclusively the method of power, right? And what is interesting in that is that studies hypothesize that while developing countries are going to see much more energy use per person in 2040, and therefore they're going to need to upgrade their grid, the U.S. and some other developed countries may actually see less energy usage per person as the consumer and residential sectors get more and more energy efficient. So this should be noted that this study assumes that no nuclear sites are going to be constructed or decommissioned right now. Right. And so what you mean by forcing out natural gas, petroleum and coal and then needing electricity as the almost exclusive method of power, that means that in our cars, in our giant ships, in our house, in our uh, our stovetops, we aren't going mm-hmm. to be using those fossil fuels. Instead, we will be needing a ton of electricity to power those things as well as the normal things, charging our laptops, powering our refrigerators that currently use electricity. And this will push to be a very positive case for nuclear because suddenly we're going to be relying on hydro and solar and wind and nuclear to make up roughly 100% of the energy future. So we'll probably go from 20% nuclear to something notably higher. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think I I don't I don't want to oversell it and say and say 50, 60% something like that, but where I see nuclear being really useful is kind of being the backup 
for these other somewhat cleaner renewable energies, right? Like we talked about that, that dispatchability of solar and of wind power where they're great sources of energy, but they are somewhat random. They're somewhat uncontrollable. Um, so instead of having nuclear to fall back on, on those days when it may be cloudless or when it may be windless, I think is actually maybe going to be where we see nuclear finest niche. Right. So increasing from where it is right now, but not appreciably to where we're a, a nuclear majority country. Right, right. So it's a pairing of those that they they work in symbiosis of nuclear and wind, or excuse me, solar and wind working when they can, but otherwise it switches to nuclear when it needs to. So that brings us to possible future number three. Uh, nuclear is essentially nowhere in this scenario. How would this happen if top of the line traditional and new nuclear power plants were to have major safety issues? like another couple Chernobyls, Fukushima's, then we, the people, might push and decide that nuclear energy is not ready. In fact, they might see the traditional nuclear power plants as a dangerous liability, these countries, and that we, the people, we should tear them down, shut them down as soon as possible, like Germany is trying to do. This could also be an early nail in the coffin for new nuclear, where the Mm -hmm. issues of nuclear generally uh, would attribute to new nuclear in people's mind and push nuclear out of the conversation. This future doesn't seem terribly likely, but it's hard to predict disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima. Right. Yeah. I think there are certainly people out there that very vehemently believe that we would be better off just not doing it at all. Right. Um, so yeah, let's let's move on to the next future, which I think is a, a little bit of an interesting one because it's not focused or it's focused on another twist as well. And that's the decentralized grid. Now, what do I mean by that? In our current electrical grid system, we're typically set up to draw power from only a few sources at once, which totally makes sense, right? The power plants are ugly, so let's situate them away from the population. Once it's out of sight, we might as well just make it as big as needed and not dot our countryside with a bunch of ugly power plants. However, there are definitely issues with this centralized system. We lose about 6% of our electrical power just from the transfer of power from the power plant through the power lines to your house. Um, In addition, that load following rears its ugly head again. With our existing technology now, a lot of that load following capability comes from big data. AI says hello right here, as it always does. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just trying to better predict our population's needs, right? But you're trying to predict the needs of of sometimes millions of homes at once, which Mm -hmm. I think is really tough. With a decentralized grid, we're talking about a lot of smaller power sources. So think of kind of like your neighborhood nuclear reactor. That sounds ridiculous, but I think that's in Oklo's eyes, for example, I think that's maybe like what they see as a very nuclear heavy future. Oh, with the, this decentralized system, the power sources are only going to be providing energy to a population that's a fraction of the size of that centralized model. And with a smaller, more localized population, I'm guessing that it's going to be easier to predict their energy needs and be a little bit more efficient with the energy that we are producing. And so with 
this decentralized method, you're thinking that maybe for nuclear, more people decide that nuclear works for them. They only need to convince a thousand people in their community and they're in the same boat Mm -hmm. uh, as far as their nuclear, their energy options. So some will probably pick these smaller nuclear energy systems for their communities. Right, exactly. And the decentralized grid is not just nuclear specific. It's a huge topic of conversation with especially solar energy where for example like tesla came out with those roof tiles Mm -hmm. Uh, that is a very good example of the decentralized grid right so they're essentially in that aspect they're just powering their home and storing it in a battery but if you had several houses or a very small solar farm for example that was powering the neighborhood right um, you could interchange that with with the nuclear reactor right or a, a single windmill a big windmill mm-hmm. that a community shares. That's very possible too. Right. That brings exactly. us to possible future number five, the final one of our five future segments where new nuclear is extremely rare for the common Joe, but very common in a few fringe use cases. Okay. So for example, new nuclear power might be employed often by the military or remote locations. You mentioned Alaska uh, and industries that need cheap heat to manufacture goods. So in this first two mm-hmm. cases, military remote locations, if the price of nuclear energy is slightly higher than wind and solar, plus storage of that electricity potentially, or natural gas, then our large-scale utility companies would probably pass on nuclear energy predominantly. Right, where, where it's very, very based on just revenue income. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the military... It's a business, yeah. Right. But the military and remote Alaska wouldn't have reliable access to wind and solar. So they might install many of these small nuclear power plants for their bases and their communities. Also, we've been talking mostly about the energy, the electricity that nuclear power plants can supply. But these power plants supply that electricity first by making heat. As, as you mentioned a little bit as well. And when they convert mm-hmm. from heat to electricity, they actually lose a lot of the heat, a lot of the potential electricity. Now, pair that with the fact that many factories need lots of heat to make their products. While nuclear energy might be too expensive to create that heat uh, indirectly through the electricity, they might decide that nuclear heat directly is a great deal and install these new small power plants, these new nuclear systems um, inside the factories. This also opens up a subsequent future where this fringe adoption of new nuclear allows the new nuclear upstarts to develop their products and processes even more. Think second generation, third generation coming Mm -hmm. down the pipeline. This additional development could lead nuclear energy prices down lower and increase safety if that's even needed. So these upstarts could be looking to convince more average Joe utility companies to adopt new nuclear energy in the subsequent decades after they get established in military and rural communities industries. Right. Yeah. I think the the factory setting and, and more of that commercial setting is really interesting because uh in many we in many ways, I think you'd see people getting used to the fact that they have a nuclear power plant at work. Why is it that much different if one is powering 
their block. Right, right. right. And you see that all the time with a ton of different services and products where yes. they, they move from work to home or home to work. The iPhone's a, a great example where people said, oh, this is an amazing phone, but it wasn't actually safe, quote unquote, for work. But then all <laughs> of a sudden work was like, well, we have to adopt these phones because they are being used by people and people love them. So it just moved to work as well. So that kind of concludes what we want to talk about for nuclear energy. It was way more interesting than I uh, was convinced initially when we were talking <laughs> about this. And Zach, you've thought way more about nuclear than I ever have. Talk to me about your takeaways from nuclear generally or what you've learned in the past two weeks. Yeah, I think one of my biggest takeaways kind of goes along with our last section on how wide ranging I think the possible futures are with this, with new nuclear and with nuclear energy in general. Um, I think with some of the other products and innovations that we look at in the past, it's pretty clear that they have a direct street to go down. Um, and, and nuclear really doesn't. And so I think just with nuclear as an example, there's a lot of times these potential big ticket items that society really plays, you know, judge, jury, and executioner on to see whether they pass the test. If, you know, even if by the numbers we could maybe start coming around to nuclear energy being viable, I think it really still needs to pass society's smell test on if they're going to allow that in their backyard. Right, right. And it's, it's really cool to kind of take the empowerment angle of that where mm -hmm. you and I can start to get active in our communities and say, oh, we think that nuclear or solar or wind, whatever we think is the, the better thing, we can push that forward because the, the community perspective on the safety of nuclear and the utility of low carbon emission energy sources, that is a huge determinant of where this future is going. Totally. I think also another thing, as far as one of my takeaways, is just the long term and kind of invisible problem here. So the invisible side of, of, well, climate change is changing slowly and very invisibly. And the, the deaths and the loss of life from fossil fuels is pretty invisible, but very impactful. All of these things are so far in the background where most people are taking energy for granted and not really thinking through the implications of what's coming out of that outlet. I think just bringing energy to people's eyes and, and not even trying to push a specific agenda or convince them of anything, but just making them think through like how the system works. I suppose that's one of the benefits of this podcast is we're sharing this message <laughs> with some of our family and friends and other people yes. online. That's something that is, is really interesting to me. And I'm, I'm going to be paying a little bit more attention as we go to energy and its impacts. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it, it really is one of those base things that like as a society, we, we depend on different ways to pull energy out of, out of the ground or out of, out of the air, out of the sun. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, yeah, fascinating to see how baseline innovations can have these extremely far reaching impacts. Absolutely. I'm also very excited to see what the audience response is. So please write to us, message us, whether it's a correction, a question, a fun fact, just a bit of feedback. We would love to hear anything you got. You can send us an email at weareheretomorrow at gmail.com. On social media, you can follow and tweet us at WAHT Project on Twitter and see us on Instagram and Facebook 
at We Are Here Tomorrow podcast. Want to hear more from us? We are everywhere podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and many, many more. So if you stop by your favorite site and subscribe, and if you stop by iTunes, please leave a review, throw us five stars. That will help our podcast come off the ground and gain some uh, validity in general. Right. And so if you guys want to see what others have to say about the podcast, we do actually have a newsletter where you can follow along and have be a little bit more part of the conversation. You can go to weareheretomorrow.com and subscribe to that newsletter. And each week we pose a question that's somewhat related to this week's podcast and open the floor to you guys. Right. And also look in the show notes, those links to our, our newsletter and our podcast, additional website, all that stuff is in the show notes. So click through, make it easy. On behalf of Zach and I, I thank you so much for listening this week. Be sure to join us in two weeks with another episode. Peace out. Bye guys. That's all we wanted to talk about in this episode. Thanks again for listening. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about the newsletter that accompanies this podcast. If you're not familiar with it, we have a newsletter that is emailed out in conjunction with our podcast episodes. We will pose a question and provide responses to get the conversation moving. After that, we would love to hear your takes. You could send in your responses to the newsletter question or even send in a response to our responses. This week's question is, when we researchers were discovering nuclear weapons and power, some surely knew that they were playing with fire. Their decisions carried significant risk. One misstep in executing plans, incorporating ethics, or even choosing strategy could cause significant damage. At what point in your life do you remember playing with fire? Tell us about it. What were some of the possible missteps or last straws, and how did it pan out? This playing with fire could be metaphorical or it could be literal, and could involve maybe a situation on the job, in a relationship, or even a larger event you were a part of. To access and sign up for that newsletter, you can go to our website at weareheretomorrow.com. There you can subscribe to the newsletter, see the latest edition, and respond to our latest one to join in on the conversation. Thanks, everyone.